about the blood moon that's going to be out tonight at 8 o'clock. And a lot of preachers have been talking about this blood moon as a sign of the end times. And uh, uh, that's what they said the last time there was a blood moon in 1836. <laughs> so. Were you there? I was not there. No. <laughs> But we actually entered the end times on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given. Uh, Peter said, this is that which was spoken by Joel the prophet in the last days. <laughs> and then he tells when the last days were, and it starts on the day of Pentecost. So we've been in the last days for a long, long time. And I don't know when the last day will be, it could be any time. So that's why we should always live today as it is the last day, shouldn't we? Okay, well, we are back in the Gospel of John, so take your Bible and turn to John chapter 16. The Gospel of John in chapter 16. And I see uh, Eleanor Riley's back. Welcome back. Can you see me? Thank you, yes, sir. Good, that's good. You probably see me better than I can see you. So, we finished our Psalms for the summer at Psalm 99. And next summer we'll pick up at Psalm 100, which will be fun, I think. And today we'll go back to the Gospel of John where we left off at the beginning of the summer. And we are in the teaching section um, of the Gospel. This covers five chapters. Chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16 in chapter 17. Teaching section. Everything else are event sections. So when we get past 17, we're going to discover Jesus goes into Jerusalem and then we have his trial, his arrest, his trial, crucifixion, resurrection, and so forth. This teaching of Jesus takes place during the Last Supper. So, just imagine how long it takes to read these five chapters. And here we're only getting a summary. We're not getting a verbatim of his teaching. Uh, and imagine how long this teaching would have taken. Maybe three or four hours. And so they ate a meal, and Jesus gets up and washes their feet. He teaches them about servanthood. He teaches them about the importance of loving each other. And he makes a statement that he is going to die. And they are concerned about that. In fact, they try to dissuade Jesus from uh, even making that statement. They say, you're not going to die. And Peter says, you know, I'll stand up and fight for you. Blah, blah, blah. You know that whole story. Uh, so they're very concerned over this fact that he believes he's going to die. They're not convinced that he's going to die, but they... He says he is, and so they're concerned about the fact that he might die. And he's not, you know, being dissuaded. And so it's starting to sink in. And by chapter 16, it's starting to really sink in that he plans to die within the end of the week. They don't understand how it's going to happen, but they anticipate his death. And you know, goodbyes are some of the most difficult things you go through. Saying goodbye, whether it's saying goodbye to a relative who is dying, and you have your last goodbye, that's very difficult. Or you say goodbye to a college, one of your kids that you're sending off to college. Or you move from one city to another, 
Remember when we moved from Baltimore, Maryland to, to Dallas? We left at the end of 1982, got in that car, and I think we arrived on January 1st or 2nd of 83, and I remember leaving, and all the tears that flowed when we left. Usually the women are the ones that cry. The men choke up after everybody leaves, and they don't, no one sees them. I guess they feel they're macho or something about that. But uh, it's very difficult when, when someone, you have to say goodbye to someone that you may never see again. And so in John 16 and verse 1, Jesus writes, or he says this to the apostles. And if you have a red letter Bible, you'll, most of the sections in chapter 16 are red letter, except for a few places where the apostles speak, which are in black letters. So John 16 and verse 1 says, These things I've spoken to you. What things? The things I just talked about. His servanthood, being servants, loving each other, and dying. His dying. And he gives the reason why he said these things. These things I've spoken to you that, here's a purpose statement, so that, in order that, you should not be made to stumble. Uh, it's important that when he dies that they don't end up uh, they're not caught off guard, and they, it doesn't trip them up. They need to be ready for it, for his death. And uh, even though they know he's going to die, when death comes, it's still a surprise. They don't know how he's going to die at this point, but when death comes, it's a surprise. Death is never convenient, by the way. Did you ever notice that? And it's a surprise. Even if you're there at the bedside of somebody, when they take that last breath, you're not ready for it. And uh, it changes everything. And he says, I'm telling you this in advance so that you're not caught off guard. You need to be ready for it. Because when it comes, there will be big changes. And I remember <clears throat> having come to Dallas, and only a year after coming to Dallas, I got a phone call that my father died. He was 61. And uh, it changed everything for my mother. Because she was 59 and had never worked a day in her life as an adult, as a married woman. And she suddenly, and he didn't have any life insurance. I mean, he was sick and he may have had $5,000 life insurance. Maybe enough to pay for a, you know, a modest funeral at that time. She ended up having to get a job and go to work and take care of herself. And it was a major adjustment, a monumental change. So when Jesus dies, the apostles are going to face some major adjustments. And they need to be ready for it. And what kind of adjustments? What's going to happen after he dies? Well, look at verse 2. It says, they, that speaks about the Jewish authorities, they will put you out of the synagogue. Excommunication. Number two. Yes, the time is coming when whoever kills you will think he offers God service execution. Two things are going to happen when I die. Number one, you're going to be excommunicated, you're going to be persecuted, and you're going to be executed for your faith. Now, the persecutors, and by putting them out of the synagogue means that they're going to put you out of the synagogue because you claim to be a messianic view following Jesus, and the rulers of the synagogue don't follow Jesus, and when you start teaching about Jesus in the synagogues, you're going to stir up a hornet's nest and they're going to put you out. 
excommunication and execution. And these persecutors, the ones that are listed as they, in verse 2, will believe that they're serving God when they do it. They're not doing it with malice. They actually think they're protecting the faith. So, when they stone Stephen, they think they are doing something righteous in stoning Stephen. Because they think he's preaching against the orthodox doctrine. He's preaching against the temple and he's saying Jesus is the Messiah. And they put him to death. And then in, James, in Acts chapter 12, James is put to death. So we have the persecution that's happening soon after Jesus died. And uh, the Jewish authorities are so uh, adamant about cleansing the faith, purifying the faith, and getting rid of these Messianic Jews, that they send Saul of Tarsus out to travel throughout the land and go into synagogues in Syria and other parts of Palestine and find people that are preaching Jesus in the synagogues, arrest them, and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. So he's like a U.S. Marshal, and he's out to arrest these Messianic Jews. Now, remember when John writes this, what would you say the year is when John writes this? About what? Yeah, 90, 95, could be 100. Somewhere in that 90 to 100. He writes this, you know, 70 years after these events take place in chapter 16. And what's happened between 30 A.D. and 95 A.D. with Christians? Yeah, they've been persecuted, haven't they? We just talked about James. We talked about these guys. Peter died. Paul ends up dying in Rome. The church that John is writing to, and we know who he's writing to because in Revelation he writes to the seven churches of Asia Minor. He's writing to churches that are in this area called Asia Minor, and they are under great persecution. Nero was the emperor in 70 AD, or 60, 64 AD. He's the one that killed Paul and uh, killed Peter. Remember, he burned down, he burned down Rome, and he blamed it on the Christians, persecuted the Christians. When John's writing this, Domitian is the emperor, and he is like a wild man. And he's persecuting Christians. And where's John when he writes this? He's been exiled. So when he says, when he tells the story of the Last Supper, and Jesus says, when I die, they're going to persecute you and execute you. Guess what? This church knows what he's talking about. They've been through it. And so why does he tell the story? So they can be ready not caught off guard when somebody knocks at their door and says are you a follower of Christ? And then persecute them like they would do like a Corey Ten Boom or Dietrich Bonhoeffer and how it's starting to happen even here in the United States more and more. So these Jews, Orthodox Jews are misguided in killing the Christians but they believe they're doing it for purposes. They're doing it with the right motive. And uh, that is, you know, the that's a characteristic of fundamentalism. When you're a fundamentalist, 
you have to protect your realm and your your faith that you're in charge of protecting your faith. Uh, you'll do a lot of things. It doesn't matter whether it's Muslim fundamentalism, whether it's Christian fundamentalism, or it's Jewish fundamentalism. Just think of uh, it was a Jewish radical that tried to blow up the mosque of Omar because he said that's where the Jewish temple should be. See, he was radical, radicalized. And did he think he was doing God's will when he tried to do that? Yes, he thought he was doing God's will when he tried to do that. Or a Christian blows up an abortion clinic. Doing God's will? Yes, doing God's will. A fundamentalist Muslim who beheads Christians. Doing Allah's will, God's will? Yes, doing God's will. So, uh, it's not a good thing because... Uh, when people think they're doing God's will and they use violence in doing God's will, uh, usually that is not God's will. So this is what you have. He says, when you, when I die, you're going to face excommunication. Worse than that, you will face you know, execution. So then he says this in verse 3. And these things they will do to you because they have not, what? They have not known the Father, nor me. They think they represent God, but they don't. Because if you miss Jesus, guess who else you miss? You miss God. So, they are operating, thinking they represent God, but they don't. They do not know God in any type of relationship way. They might know about God, they might know the doctrines, but they do not know God in some sort of experiential way. And he goes on to say, But these things I've told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Again, I don't want you to be called off guard. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning. I didn't tell you these things when we started the ministry three years ago, right after the baptism of John. I didn't have to tell you about persecution and excommunication. Why not? What does he say there in verse 4? Because what? I was with you. I protected you. You didn't have to worry about this. Somebody came up against us. I could just go raise my hand. And guess what? They'd fall backwards. You didn't have to worry about your lives. Because I was with you. But, verse 5, now, look at that. I go away to him who sent me. That's back to the Father. And then he says something very interesting. And none of you ask me, where are you going? He says, now I'm ready to go back. And, and no one's asking me where I'm going. <clears throat> now this is pretty interesting because back in chapter 13, I think it's Peter or Philip, when Jesus says he's going away, they say, where are you going? Look. Where are you going? But what does he say here in verse 5? But now, I go away, and guess what? None of you ask me, where are you going? They asked him before, but now they're not asking him. Why not? Well, I think it's because they know when he goes, their lives are going to be in danger. They're going to be excommunicated. They're going to be executed. And suddenly, they're thinking... They're, they're, they're looking out for their own selves. 
Suddenly where he's going is just a curiosity. That's not really that important. What's the real important thing? You know, how are we going to escape this? <laughs> you know, who's going to protect us now if you're going away? So uh, that's more important than where is he going. The curiosity factor is now sort of blown out the window. Look at verse 6. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow is still your heart. And it's not so much that just that he's going away that they're sorrowful, but because they're going to have to face the consequences of his going away. So that's the first section, verses 1 through 6. And now he's going to tell us in verse Seven, that there are advantages to them when he goes away. There are disadvantages when he goes away, excommunication, execution, disadvantage. Now there are advantages for he, when he goes away. So look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. That sort of sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Not to your advantage. You're going to be executed, excommunicated. But now it is to your advantage. Well, how is it to their advantage that he's going to go away? Look at the rest of verse 7. For if I do not go away, the helper, also translated in some Bibles, the comforter or the counselor, uh, which we know back from John 14, uh, is the Holy Spirit. If I do not go away... The Helper, will say the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So, in order for us to get the Holy Spirit, Jesus has to leave. He has to die. And he has to go back to his Father. Now note the words in verse 7. The last couple of the words. Uh, the Helper will not come. Look at this. To you, if I depart, I will send him to you. So we see that the Holy Spirit is being sent to the apostles and to the believers. Okay? Uh, when will this happen? This will happen initially on the day of Pentecost. So Jesus goes away. He's, he dies. He's resurrected. For 40 days he talks to the apostles and his resurrected body. And he says, I'm going to be leaving now. I'm going back to my Father. I want you to stay put. Because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Just as John baptized in the water, so you shall be baptized not many, what? Days hence. It's going to happen real soon. At that point, Jesus goes up. Ten days later, guess what? The Holy Spirit is given to them on the day of Pentecost. And every person who believes in Christ since then has received the Holy Spirit. So he had to go away for us to get the Holy Spirit. That is an advantage. It's to your advantage that I go away. I'm convinced that those of us that are separated by 20 centuries have a wrong concept of Christianity. <clears throat> we have this yearning, wouldn't it have been nice to walk with Jesus you know, as he preached the gospel and seemed to heal somebody of blindness. and do, Wouldn't it have been great to be with Jesus? You know, we have it better off than they did. What did he say? It's to your what? Advantage. So, is there an advantage to us that he went away and sent us the Holy Spirit? Yes. 
it would have been a disadvantage had we been living on earth at that time. The Holy Spirit replaces Jesus, and he's the new helper. And that's an advantage, because if you walked with Jesus on earth, like the Apostle Peter, you've been one place, and that's where he would have been, one place at a time. But guess what? The Holy Spirit is where? Everywhere, Everywhere with every believer. So if you were one of the apostles and you took a trip 50 miles away and Jesus stayed back in Jerusalem, he wouldn't have been with you. You'd been out there on your own. But guess what? Now that we have the Holy Spirit, he's with us always. And so that's an advantage, you see. And then he says this in verse 8. And when he has come, which was on the day of Pentecost, he will do something. He'll convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Now notice this. He comes to us in verse 7. But he has a ministry to the world in verse 8. I'm convinced that that ministry that the Holy Spirit has to the world is through us. Since the Holy Spirit comes and lives on us, it's through us that he's going to do these things. What's he going to do? He's going to convict the world. Now, the word convict there is a legal word. Right? Some translations say convince. It's a, it's a word that uh, is associated with a prosecuting attorney who's trying to uh, bring about a conviction of guilt, who's trying to convince the jury to find in his favor or in his client's favor or against the person who has committed the crime. So here we see that when the Spirit comes, he's going to convince or convict the world, number one, of sin, number two, of righteousness, and number three, of judgment. And now Jesus elaborates on these three things, and he explains what this means. So look at verse 9. Of sin, he'll convince the world of sin, because they, that's people who operate in the world, do not believe in me. So you had the Jewish authorities, you had the Roman authorities. Uh, they did not believe in Jesus. They put a sign up on the cross. Jesus, King of the Jews. But they didn't, do, they didn't believe it. They did that to mock him. So that is sin. To reject Jesus as God's Messiah is sin. Not to believe upon him is sin. The essence of sin is unbelief. That's the essence of it. So when Adam and Eve sin, they don't take God in his word. They don't believe what God said. The day you eat thereof, you will die. Instead, they listen to another word from the adversary, Satan. So the heart of sin is unbelief. They did not believe that Jesus was God's representative on earth instead they killed him. Verse 10. He will convince or convict them, the, the world of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. So they rejected. They didn't believe in Jesus. They killed him. Guilty. was charged. Put him to death. But guess what God did? God raised him from the dead and said, not guilty. So, who was right? Were they right? They rejected Jesus. Were they right in rejecting Jesus? Were they right in 
Not believing in Jesus? No. Who was righteous in this matter? Jesus was the righteous one, and they weren't. How do we know that Jesus was righteous? Because God raised him from the dead, and he went to the Father, and he sends the Holy Spirit. And so, they are convicted of righteousness. And then verse 11. He will convince them of judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. This deals with the future. Judgment in the future. They will be judged. Why will they be judged? Because what? The ruler of this world is judged. You see, it wasn't just the Jewish leaders that put Jesus to death. It wasn't just the Roman leaders that put Jesus to death. There was a power behind the throne. And who do you think that power was? Satan, the ruler of this world. The invisible ruler behind the powers. And he's the one that put Jesus to death. And in that act, he sealed his own judgment. And if you follow Satan, then your judgment is sealed as well. Because he's the motivator who led to Jesus' death on the cross and the use of violence. In some ways, it wasn't Jesus before Pilate. It was Pilate before Jesus. Who was really being judged there? Pilate was being judged. <laughs> Jesus being judged. And Pilate was being judged because he was doing Satan's bidding without even realizing it. They thought they were judging Jesus, and ironically, he was judging them. So if you side against Christ, then you face the future judgment. And several places in the Bible says that God has appointed judgment to Jesus, and one day we'll all stand before Christ and be judged. So that's the next section. Now we have a third section, which deals with the Holy Spirit's ministry to us, to the disciples. And that begins in verse 12. Now here's what he says. I still have many things to say to you. Well, he's going to be dead within a couple of days. All right, this is the Last Supper. You know, when he goes down to the Last Supper, where does he go? Anybody know? Garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested there, and guess what? He has a midnight trial, and the next day he's crucified. He's going to be dead within 24 hours. He says, I have a lot more that I want to talk about. So that's what he's saying in verse, what is it, 14? Verse 12. I have many things to say to you. Uh, he says, but you can't bear them. Now, that's very interesting. It's not only that he doesn't have time. He says they can't take it in. The things that he has are too heavy to carry. He's already told them they're going to be persecuted. That's pretty big. He said a lot more. <laughs> if, you, if you knew what the future held, you, know, you wouldn't want to know. <laughs> so he says there's just a lot more that I have to say to you, but you can't bear it right now. Notice now. I have many things to say to you. You can't bear it now. You'll be able to bear it later, but you can't bear it now. Do you see that? It's really important that you get that. Verse 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Uh, notice he will guide you or he will lead you. This, uh, he, doesn't, he won't dump it all on you at once. <laughs> okay? You won't be able to handle it after I'm dead and gone. The Holy Spirit comes. You know, he, it's, he's going to have to give it to you piecemeal, a little bit at a time. Until finally you get it all. 
So it'll be the Holy Spirit who comes in my place that will teach you this wisdom and this truth and this knowledge that you will need. And then he says this in verse 13. For or because he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Now, if you've been with us earlier in the Gospel of John, you know that this is exactly what Jesus said about himself. Jesus said, I never speak on my own. The only thing I ever say to you is what? What the Father has first told me to say. I say what I hear the Father say, and I do what the Father wants me to do. He says, now when the Holy Spirit comes, and He leads you over time and all truth, He won't be speaking by His own authority. He will only speak what He hears spoken. And so Jesus hears the Father speak, and now Jesus passes it on to the Holy Spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit speaks on behalf of Jesus. And then it says this, and not only that, not only will He speak what He hears spoken to first, He won't come up with things to say. Jesus will tell Him what to say. And Verse 13, at the end of the verse, he will tell you things to come. He will reveal to you future things that are going to happen. And he does this through dreams, visions, prophecies in the book of Acts. You know, one prophet, Agabus, says, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to bind you and you're going to end up dead. He sees the future. How did he know that? The Holy Spirit gave it to him. John wrote another book, right at the end of the Bible. What's it called? Did John see the future? Yes, the Holy Spirit gives him the future. Teaches him all the truth. So the Holy Spirit is going to reveal future things to the apostles. And then in verse 14, He will glorify Me. For He will take of what is Mine, and He will declare it to you. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. It's very important. Uh, the Holy Spirit does not draw attention to himself. Um, but he honors and he exalts and he always points to Jesus. So any message that does not exalt Jesus is not from the Holy Spirit. He's always honoring and exalting Jesus. In fact, in John's other writing in Revelation, I want to show you a passage Go to that last book of the New Testament and find Revelation 19. Now keep your finger in John because we'll look at one more verse. When you get to Revelation 19, and look at verse. said to me, Revelation 19 9. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet, this is an angel, John says, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, see that you do not do that. I'm a fellow servant and your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus 
worship God. Now look at this last statement, verse 9. For the testimony of who? Jesus is what? The Spirit of Christ. So anybody that gets up and claims they're speaking on behalf of the Holy Spirit, guess what? It will always be a testimony to Jesus. If it's not a testimony to Jesus, it is not a message from the Holy Spirit. So, God uses us. When Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, he convinces those people of sin that they put Jesus to the cross. They were doing, they were not doing God's will. They were working against God. He says, he convinces them of righteousness. That three days later, God raised him from the dead. And today he sits on the throne of King David as ruler over the universe. And he convinced them of judgment. And he said, if you don't repent, you're going to be judged. Notice, the Holy Spirit was doing that, but he was doing that through the voice of a person. He was using a spirit-filled person to preach that message. Now back in John 16, in verse 15, Jesus says this, All things that the Father has are mine. God holds nothing back from Jesus. Jesus inherits it all. He has all wisdom, he has all knowledge, all power that's God's is his. Therefore, I said, he, the Holy Spirit, will take of mine, and he will declare it unto you. So the Holy Spirit, Jesus represents the Father, all that the Father has comes to Jesus, and then Jesus gives it to the Holy Spirit, who declares Jesus unto us. So notice you have the Trinity there. The Father, then the Word, mine, that's Jesus, and then the Word, He, that's the Holy Spirit. All that the Father possesses belongs to Jesus, truth, wisdom, knowledge, and power. And it's the Holy Spirit who declares to us these riches. And that's why it's to our advantage that Jesus went away and died and he ascended into the Holy Spirit. When the apostles were walking with Jesus, the information they had was very limited. They couldn't take in all the information. They had to wait for the Holy Spirit. And today, guess what? Look what we have here. We have the full revelation of God's Word. Did the apostles have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and all these books? They didn't have any of them. When John was written, all the apostles had died except John. <laughs> We got material and information inspired by the Spirit that they never had. So when you say, oh, wouldn't it have been great to walk with Jesus? Hey, it's greater to walk with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge that we have today. We'll pick up in verse 16. Thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's a word of hope. It's a word that lets us know that we're not one whit behind the apostles as far as knowledge goes, as far as experiencing your love and your power. Help us realize, Lord, that we should be walking in the power of the Spirit. We should be used by the Spirit to be a mouthpiece and proclaim the gospel that those around us who can be convicted of their sin, righteousness, and of judgment. 
Oh, Lord, help us to be that perfect instrument, that tool through which you speak. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, now you can be stopped. Finalized.